Hi, this is Greg Poling, director of the Asian Maritime Transparency Initiative at CSIS, and I'm joined today by two colleagues, Sarah Watson, who is an associate fellow with the Wadwani Chair in U.S.-India Policy Studies, and Zach Cooper, who is a senior fellow on Asian security here at CSIS. Uh, and we're here talking in Doklam. Sarah, uh, I want to turn to you first to give us a little scene setter. Uh, what exactly happened? This was a weeks-long standoff, and I imagine a lot of people might have gotten lost in the news cycle. That would be understandable, and it's especially so given that particularly the Indian government was quite tight-lipped right from the beginning about what was going on and what the situation on the ground was. So the first couple weeks of the standoff, which began in mid-June, people were spending a lot of time just trying to figure out where, in fact, the troops were. But to back up a little bit, in late June, shortly after Modi returned from his uh, visit to the United States, reports began to surface that Indian and Chinese forces were engaged in a standoff on a Himalayan plateau in what India said was Bhutanese territory and what China said was Chinese territory. And the precipitating event was apparently the construction of a motorable road that could carry heavier weight vehicles than the previous track that was already there by the PLA. It is undisputed that India then crossed an international border, the Indian slash question mark border, into territory that was disputed um, uh, between Bhutan and China. India said it moved into Bhutanese territory to protect the interests of its smaller neighbor. China said that India had crossed into Chinese territory. And that was a huge point of conflict, obviously, because for China, once it had cast the situation in that light, it became very difficult uh, to back down because it had to make a point that Indian troops were on Chinese territory. To understand the crisis a little bit better, you have to understand the relationship between India and Bhutan for decades, uh, particularly since the Tibetan uprising in the 50s. Bhutan has looked to China for looked to India, excuse me, for protection from China. In the past maybe 20 years, that very close, tight relationship has begun to fray. And I think the fraying has accelerated due to the de democratic transition in Bhutan, where you have multiple voices on multiple sides of the spectrum saying, we should get closer to India, we should get closer to China, we should move away from India, even if that means moving closer to China. It's become a matter of democratic contestation. So India, I think, for years has been a little bit insecure about its security relationship with Bhutan. I think that made it even more anxious to step in and show that it was still the security provider for that part of the Himalayas. And so if we jump to today, the situation, at least as, as the papers reported, although both governments are being evasive, is that uh, after a long series of negotiations, Indian troops have pulled back to the Indian side of the border. Chinese troops are withdrawing or will withdraw, uh, at least the buildup, and we think that the road is not being built, yeah. but neither side has confirmed, in fact, that the Chinese are not finishing the road. Yeah, so that's another. Just as a uh, standoff began in confusion, it's ending in a certain amount of confusion because India released a very brief statement simply saying that after several rounds of negotiation, both sides had mutually agreed to disengage. What I have heard is that the Indian forces did withdraw first, but there were also many more of them on the spot than Chinese forces. India never said that China had agreed to stop building the road, and China has not said, we will stop building the road. 
but the uh, consensus uh, view seems to be that the trade-off for Indian forces departing was that China would stop building the road. And China's been a little bit hesitant. They're now saying, oh, if the weather allows, we will continue building the road. So they may be creating a way for them to back out. Okay. Well, so the reason that we're talking about this on a Maritime Focus podcast is because the lessons, at least in some parts of you know think tank world that are being drawn here, are that uh, this was a case of at least tactical success on the Indian part in that the Chinese uh, tried to change the status quo by building this motorable road on the Bhutanese side of the disputed border. India moved. Whatever else happened today looks a lot like it did the day before the Chinese came in. So if nothing else, the Indians got what they wanted and the Chinese, they didn't necessarily lose anything, but they didn't make the gains they wanted. And so we're having a lot of folks uh, talking about how this is a uh, example that is applicable in other places like the South China Sea or the East China Sea, where we also see Chinese attempts to change the status quo without overt use of military force, which is why I invited Zach here. Zach, you've done a lot of work on potential strategies to counter Chinese coercion. Do you agree with the, the commentariat that, that this is an example that can be used in other places, especially the maritime space? Well, I, I think in many ways what we've seen from the Indians is actually uh, using the example of the Vietnamese in the maritime realm, where the Vietnamese consistently over a period of months were willing to accept a fair amount of risk that a conflict could escalate in order to show China that Vietnam was indeed serious. Uh, this is going back to the 2014 uh, oil incident. And so I think that's very similar to what we've seen from the Indians. Uh, a real willingness to put forces on the ground in fairly large numbers to accept that there could be an escalation uh, in an effort to demonstrate to China that India was quite serious about uh, persuading Beijing to pull back. And so I, I think there's no question that this is sort of the template um, for dealing with Chinese course of efforts. The challenge is how do you stop China from doing what it's doing. The answer is you stand up firmly and consistently over a period of time and accept some risk. Now, I think there are two possible critiques of this argument. One is that India didn't actually win anything, right? They may not have lost. They may have returned the situation to the status quo. But returning to the status quo, some people may see as a loss in it of itself. So Eli Ratner has argued that in fact, India should have been attempting to make China pay a cost for taking this action, and that by letting China return to the status quo, India is actually letting Beijing off the hook. And you know, I think this line of argument goes that it would have been possible, perhaps, to put more pressure on China before the BRICS meeting, before the 19th Party Congress, that this was actually a time when India had some leverage, and it could have pushed even harder with the Chinese to sort of teach Beijing a lesson. I think that could have been quite risky, um, but that's certainly one of the arguments you're hearing made. Can I just add to that? I think that one interesting way to look at it is asking yourself what each side wanted the most, and did they get it? And I think actually, in this case, both sides got what they most wanted. China got India withdrawing, and India got, I think, an implicit admission that this was not Chinese territory. So, in a sense, China won in that 
on June 15th, 2017. It was widely agreed that this was not Chinese territory. On September 1st, 2017, it is perhaps implicitly widely agreed that it was not Chinese territory. By threatening that status quo, China kind of got a concession of India withdrawing. Of course, India hadn't been across the border in the first place. But by being maximalist, it, you can create a situation in which retreating to your previous less maximalist position seems like a win for the other side, even though you haven't actually given up anything that you didn't have three months ago. Right, but if I can push both of you on that point, because this is an argument that, that some folks are making, that this, you know, the Chinese, by forcing the Indians to withdraw and by getting the Indians to do it in a way that allowed China to save a lot of face, um, so China ha does not have to admit that it's doing anything, that that means that it wasn't necessarily a win for the Indians. But I think the easy counter is the Indians withdrew, but the Indians were only there in the first place to prevent the Chinese from doing something that now the Chinese appear not to be doing. If the goal for China was to change the status quo by building a new road and thereby you know, extending greater administrative control over this region – the only Indian goal, really, was to prevent that from happening, to make sure the status quo stayed as it was. And if that's your argument, then things could have gone worse for the Chinese. They're in, you know, but the Indians, the Indians got their number one goal, which was preventing a change of the status quo. The Chinese didn't, because ultimately their reach, their maximalist goal was to change the status quo, right? I, I agree with you on that. I, of course, all of this is on the assumption that, in fact, China will withdraw and they will stop building the road. And you know, I, I think that's probably right, but we have to keep in mind that this wouldn't be the first time that the Chinese have made some sort of completely unclear agreement uh, and then not followed through on what the other side thought was an agreed solution. So you know, if you go back to the 2012 Scarborough Shoal incident, when it appeared that the United States and China had agreed to a disengagement that both the Philippines and China would withdraw from Scarborough Shoal. And in fact, the Philippines withdrew, China stayed and enhanced its control of the area. I, you know, we're all assuming now that nothing like that will happen. But once again, there's been an agreement. The Indian side withdrew first. The Chinese side has said it intends to withdraw at least some portion uh, of its forces. Uh, but I think we'll have to see whether they actually follow through on that agreement. And this is where, you know, the challenge for, for the Indians is going to be, you may have stopped one change to the status quo at one period in time, but now every time in the future that China attempts to do anything that would change the status quo in that area, you're going to have to do the same thing. You're going to have to continually accept risk. Yeah, that's exactly, I agree with that. Um, I think it was the IRA who said to Margaret Thatcher, you have to be lucky every time and we only have to be lucky once. If you are on the offensive and you're constantly probing, it's a fairly low cost probing. Obviously there's a risk of escalation, but this standoff was fairly low cost. If you discover a weakness, then you have gained something and you've scored a point Whereas every country in the Asia has to be equally resilient to India on every occasion to avoid China scoring that point. And just to add to that point, um, I, I think one of the challenges here is that the Chinese might believe that there actually was no risk to the action they took in the first place. 
So if China doesn't face any downside risk from attempting these actions, then it has absolutely no incentive not to try them again and again and again. And so the question is, how do you make China pay a cost without closing the avenue for Beijing to actually withdraw from these types of situations? That's a very difficult question. So this is, as you said, Eli Ratner's point, basically, that if, if there's no additional cost to the Chinese, and there's no reason not to continue this kind of adventurism. But you know, we, I guess we can't know this until we see what happens months from now and if the Chinese uh, step up the, the pace of, of this kind of provocation. But one argument would be that the Indians just showed that they are willing to present, to present escalation risk to the Chinese. So the Chinese try something. As a result is a weeks-long standoff against a superior Indian force that could have escalated. The Chinese decide that wasn't worth it. They back down. They may now be more hesitant because India's shown its resolve. And this is the argument that you'll get on the Vietnamese side, right? The reason that, that the oil rig, H-191, hasn't been plopped in the middle of disputed territory again since 2014 is because the Chinese were surprised by the strengths of the Vietnamese response. They've continued to poke the Vietnamese, but they haven't done it quite so brazenly since. I think that's right. And you know, the lesson we should take away from that is the Chinese are unlikely to try the same approach again. So I, I think... My guess is that this was a particularly tricky approach because it wasn't going directly and putting pressure on India. It was putting pressure on Bhutan and forcing India into making a decision about whether it was going to accept risk, not necessarily just on its own behalf, but on behalf of its neighbor. Um, I, I think you can imagine a whole series of other ways that China could push on these border disputes that would maybe be slightly different uh, either in terms of the level of escalation or the kind of escalation, which would raise questions again about how committed India is to fulfilling its commitments. One thing to add on the question of Bhutan, I think one of the most interesting documents to come out of this whole standoff was an op-ed written by the editor of Bhutan's most prominent independent newspaper in an Indian newspaper shortly after the standoff ended in which he said, he made the argument, and I'm not endorsing it necessarily, but it's interesting that he believes this, that Bhutan had saved India yet again um, by allowing this territory to remain disputed when what Bhutan would really like is to have a comprehensive border settlement with China. And he argued that such a settlement was basically drafted in the 90s and India objected to it, and Bhutan's leaders at that time let it drop. And he then said, and as a result, China has punished us by these constant border incursions, none of which India has responded to in the same way until China uh, encroached on an area that was strategically sensitive for India. So again, you know, Bhutan is a monarchy, it's parliamentary monarchy. This guy may not represent the, the views of decision makers. But he might represent the views of a new government that could be coming in the next couple of years who thinks that why is it worth it to be basically the punching bag that China uses when it's trying to get through to India? Why don't we just have a comprehensive border settlement? We don't really care about the Doklam Plateau. We care more about stuff in the north and just settle this once and for all. Of course, you could then say, well, what makes you think it will be settled even when you have a settlement? China doesn't necessarily respect that. But that does seem to be the view of some influential people in Bhutan. So there's another argument making the rounds that the uh, 
potential lessons here are limited because India is in a unique position of parity, at least on, on this front, where Indian forces on the border were actually greater in number, they were better positioned than the Chinese, that you can't hope for Southeast Asian states, for instance, to be able to replicate that. And that given the India-Bhutan uh, defense relationship, there was a unique dynamic where India as a third party could intervene. And short of maybe a Scarborough Shell situation with the U.S., there's not a whole lot of, of ways for the U.S., for instance, to, to ride to the help of, of Vietnam or, or another claimant. Uh, I'm wondering if you think that holds water and if you really think that it's just, you know, if weaker states can replicate this, given obviously the, you know, the Vietnamese are not going to scare the PLA the way that the Indians at this one moment in this one place clearly outnumbered uh, their Chinese counterparts. I, I think that's a it's a tough question, and I am a bit divided on the answer. So on one hand, I think it's true that you know the Indian capability is certainly greater than most of the other Chinese neighbors, and so and I, I do think it matters in that China has more reason to be worried about an escalation with India. At the same time. China has been remarkably careful to avoid any major escalation with any of its neighbors, even the smallest neighbors in the South China Sea. Um, and you know, perhaps it is going to be more difficult for some of those small neighbors to push back hard against China, in part because they may just not have the capability to make a continued effort to actually stop China, deny China from doing something that would harm their interests. Um, but I still think they can be effective, which is why it's important that uh, that Vietnam was able to push back in 2014, that the Philippines was able to push back at Second Thomas Shoal with the help of the United States over the horizon. Uh, so I, I do think smaller partners uh, can be effective, but there's no question that when China is pushing on big countries like India, like Japan, that I think it's more careful in those situations to avoid a major escalation. This is a little bit of a tangent on the small countries point, but I would be actually be really interested to see how small countries in the region are viewing this, whether they might not have a completely different lens, which is not, oh, India stood up to China, so therefore maybe I could stand up to China. But basically, the elephant and the slightly smaller elephant are fighting, and the small countries got squashed, like the grass got squashed when the elephants fight. You know, do they see this as India proudly standing up on behalf of a smaller country to China, or do they see it as a regional hegemon and a wannabe regional hegemon who is frankly not beloved by its neighborhood, <laughs> doing what great powers do, and it doesn't really have any lessons for them except maybe you want to conciliate one or the other as quickly as possible. Uh, I think for most in Southeast Asia, they see India much, they, they see India as much more of a uh, outmatched middle power than they do a contender to China. They don't see India the way I think perhaps India sees itself in this <laughs> In this, so they are far more likely to place themselves in the Indian role yeah. in this than than the other way around. Uh, that doesn't mean that I think universally you're you're getting cheers for India. I think you you are certainly hearing that, especially on the Vietnamese side. But uh, you know, for a lot of folks in, throughout the region, I think the Chinese narrative is probably the one they're hearing the most right now. And the Chinese narrative is that we won and the Indians went slinking back across the border. So, uh, you know. The Indians, by allowing the Chinese to save face, did not exactly 
propagandized the fact that this was a, a tactical win for them. Yeah, that's that's important. Yeah, I was thinking more of South Asia, Bangladesh, Nepal. You know, to a certain extent, Myanmar that have had a kind of more intimate relationship with India, whereas Southeast Asia, India has been all intermittently ignoring and then trying to do outreach. So I think it maybe has a slightly better reputation there. <laughs> I think that the other thing that we should say about the results of the uh, dispute is that, you know, I, I think we may agree that this was, uh, if not a tactical loss for China, probably still a tactical tactical draw or maybe a tactical win for India. Um, Where I think it's pretty clear that it's probably a loss on the Chinese part is in the big picture, long-term strategy. You know, this is the kind of action that is going to uh, cause, I think, and Sarah, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, I think it will cause many in the Indian community to think hard about how reliant they want to be on assuming good relations with China over time. And much like China has done in the South China Sea and to some extent the East China Sea and with South Korea and Taiwan, you know, China as it grows is putting lots of pressure on its neighbors. And even though it used to have, I think, some escape valves, that is some of its neighbors who it had fairly positive relations with, this growing pressure, I think, is going to eventually become more of a problem for China. Um, you know, m- many people in China often portray the broader dispute uh, between, say, China and Japan or China and the United States as the one that is the most important. But I think what we're seeing here is that it's it's almost uh, self-encirclement, right? Uh, China putting so much pressure on so many of its neighbors that eventually they may end up banding together in some form and posing a real challenge to China, even though China is stronger and bigger than any of its smaller neighbors. Yeah, I I agree that it certainly has changed some minds in India, but I think that's um, only one point on a trajectory of the past few years, which has been anti-China, particularly under the present government. There is just very little patience for China and a growing awareness of China as a threat. Perhaps what has changed is the um, tolerance for outright, um, I don't want to say attrition, or outright frost in the relationship, whereas before they've been very careful to say, okay, we'll do one thing that China won't like in this three-month period and then nothing else and then one more thing in the next three months. Now it might be two things in a three-month period. Does What is the possibility that uh, either this one incident or if we see kind of continual escalation of, of tensions on the disputed land border, it pushes India toward greater involvement in the maritime disputes? I mean, we've seen this steadily building for almost a decade now, but I think of the Japan issue, and you know, Japan's drive to play a bigger role as kind of security provider and capacity builder in the South China Sea was driven in large part by the escalation around the Senkakus, that they felt uh, it's better to try to help others fight the same kind of bullying from the Chinese and, and make it a united front. Yeah, that's a natural assumption. Um, Harry Harris did explicitly make that comparison while the standoff was going on and was pretty soundly slapped down by the Indian government, who said it had nothing to do, was in no way similar to the South China Sea. I think that it will make India perhaps more sympathetic 
um, to small countries in South China Sea, but it seems to me still extremely unlikely that they would uh, get involved in a bigger way, largely because they feel that they are fighting on their own front. They don't need to open up a second front, or they don't need to join a second front. They're doing the Lord's work in Western China, and other countries can worry about Southeastern China. So if, if the Vietnamese called tomorrow and said, let's talk Brahmos missiles, the Indians are no more likely to say yes today than they were six weeks ago? <laughs> My understanding is that that is never going to happen. <laughs> that, that's just but, a talking point? I mean, they have been making a, Vietnam, you know, is a really good example of their Act East policy. And in fact, it's kind of the only example of their Act East policy, which is why it keeps coming up. But they have been making very deliberate outreach to Vietnam. You know, would that extend to like sending a patrol through the South China Sea? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, I want to end it there, but I do want to give Zach last word. Uh, give us the, the Reader's Digest takeaways here. If you're in Southeast Asia watching Oklahoma, what did you just learn? Well, I think the main takeaway, again, is that uh, countries can be successful at pushing back against Chinese coercion but they have to do it at the point and at the location and the time that the Chinese are pushing. So what made India successful here? I think it's the fact that India, in a pretty quick amount of time, was able to take some risk and to demonstrate to China that it was willing to stop the road construction and that it was willing to accept some real risk to doing so. And you know, it, I think many of us in Washington have thought the same thing about the South China Sea, right? That if one is trying to stop Chinese construction, say, in the Spratly Islands, the time to do it is before the road gets finished, um, not after the road is finished and they're you know, paving over the top and drawing nice lines on the road. Uh, so I think the, the big lesson is you have to stop the change of the status quo before it's completed, because after that point, uh, trying to roll back those changes is just too difficult. All right, with that, uh, Zach, Sarah, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Greg.